Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Theology and Apologetics. I'm your host, Thomas Fretwell. I'm very excited about today's episode. We are doing a special episode uh, in remembrance of Holocaust Memorial Day. And also on the 27th of January this year, it is the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Auschwitz is the Nazi death camp where more than one million people perished and it was liberated on the 27th of January and I'm hoping to raise some awareness about that Uh, and I have a very special guest with me who has uh, wonderfully agreed to sit and share her story. It is Holocaust survivor turned singing sensation Dorit Oliver Wolf. Dorit, I'd just like to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you very much for being here and agreeing to chat with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. No problem at all. Now, before we, I, I want to talk about your book. I want to talk about your story and have you recount some of these things to us. But before we begin, let me just read to you a few statistics that were done by various different trusts. And just, I'd love to just get your thoughts on these. So the, the first one is a UK, and it says this, 5% of UK adults do not believe the Holocaust took place, and 1 in 12 believe its scale has been exaggerated. That's one survey. And then a survey from over the, in the States. It says two-thirds of American millennials surveyed in a recent poll cannot identify what Auschwitz is. 22% of millennials in the poll said they haven't heard of the Holocaust or are not sure whether they've heard of it. Now, for me, when I hear statistics like that, I find it unbelievable in some respects. And it shows us you know we've got some work to do and we'll talk about your work in holocaust education later but i'm obviously a little more personally detached from the issue than you are so as someone who's more personally involved how how do you feel when you hear statistics like that well a proposition they should invite me and i will put them right and i will talk to them and i will tell them the truth about part of my life so basically it is ignorance and also if it doesn't concern certain part of the world, it's not them. It is those Jews somewhere else. And I think that where I come in here, and this is where I'm dedicating the rest of my life to it now, to educate people. Because this is a typical attitude. But it is not particularly their fault. Because the world is divided in them and us. And in this case, for these people... It is them because they, it doesn't concern them. And one of the hopes that I'm kind of w- wanting to do this interview is obviously there are a lot of facts that people can learn in school, but facts are sometimes a little cold if they're detached from you know the narrative, the story that they're part of. So I'm really hoping that through actually sitting down and having a conversation, hearing from you personally, we can encourage people to actually try and put these facts into a real story. I think that'll have has a much more impactful way of helping people understand what actually did happen. And of course, uh, you have written a book that tells of your story, and I would uh, urge everyone who's listening to this to go and buy a copy. The book is called From Yellow Star to Pop Star, and on, on the show notes we will have links to where you can get that. Um, what was the story behind the book? What, what kind of urged you, caused you to write it at this stage in your life? Well, I didn't speak about it for a long time because I basically put all that happened... Uh, in a little box and put it a little bit away because for people like me who have gone through it, the Holocaust is not just on the 27th of January each year. To me, it's so much part of my life. I have to live with it, but I cannot live by it because otherwise I would not have had a life. 
So you have to learn how much you can cope with. There are lots of people who just mm. couldn't cope with it. I have decided at a very young age that I'm not going to be a victim and that I'm going to be a survivor. And through being a survivor, I think that I am now ready to talk about it. I think it started when my daughter and my granddaughter bought a ticket to go to Budapest because I just never wanted to see, mm. never wanted to go back again because it was just too many bad memories. And I don't know where in new statistics it says, but the Hungarian Nazis have killed more Jews than the Germans have. Oh, I, I remember reading that in the book. We'll, we'll mention a little I bit mean, about they were, that. They were really and truly, they were <coughs> born anti-Semites. For me, the Holocaust Memorial Day as such, it, it has to be remembered because it must not be forgotten. When you just think about it, it is different. If you kill a criminal, you usually punish them for what they have done. But the only crime that these Jews have had is to be born Jewish. Surely that cannot be a crime to be killed for, especially the children. When no baby was born with hate, babies don't know what hate is. They cannot have done something so horrible that they deserve to die for. So, but if you think of how many millions of people have died simply because they were Jewish. Let's kind of get into some of the narrative of the book because there's a few episodes I'd like you to I get too excited on, <laughs> if that's okay so let, let's kind of start from the beginning so uh, one of the first stories that stood out to me was the story when you you first sort of had that realization that you were in fact Jewish which is when the lady spat at you if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about that episode in your life so you read my book I read the book very quickly, yeah, yeah. Not as quickly as my wife. She read it even quicker. It was yeah. that um, I was born in Serbia, in Novi Sad, in then, I suppose it was Yugoslavia. And uh, my mother and my grandmother, was they were Hungarians. So we lived in Novi Sad, like everybody else. And as we were not religious, it didn't really... The, the, it was not sort of the primarily importance to say, good morning, I'm Jewish, or say, good afternoon, I'm a Christian. It was just not something that was on the daily menu to talk about it. Of course. So when the war broke out, it was very sudden. But, uh, Belgrade was bombed, carpet bombed, and the whole city was burning. And my mother and I managed with difficulty to get out of the burning house. And all we had was our pyjamas and nighty, whatever we had on. And it was in April. Now, April is very, very cold, snow, ice, you name it. And the house was burning, and we were really frightened that we would burn with it. Eventually, we got out of the house, and there were about 20 people living in that building. And we were just as soon as we got onto the street, we didn't have a choice in which direction we would go, because the people, it was like a stampede. Mm. There were human beings just running out of the city into the nearest forest outside Belgrade, it was a beautiful forest. And of course, people were dying, and as, as we were all running towards the woods, the aeroplanes would come down, and with a machine gun, they would mow down all the rest of the people who were running. It was, it was terrible. I just remember my mother saying, whatever you do, just don't let go of my hand. But every time those aeroplanes came down, People just go onto the floor, fall on the floor, and if they were small children, the adults would cover them with their own bodies. 
strange people. And I think, I didn't know at the time what was happening, but later I said, my God, these people were heroes. One time, as we were running, it happened to me, and I was covered with other people. And then when the air raid was over, I tried to get up out of it, but I couldn't, because the people, all I could feel is this hot, sticky, whatever it was, I didn't know it was blood. It was all <coughs> over me. And then I was holding onto a hand, mm. but it was not my mother's anymore. And I was only five, five and a half. And then, of course, people above me were taken off, and my mother took off as much blood as she could, but there was no time to stop. So we arrived in the woods, and the partisans were there, and they fed the, us. The partisans, is that the, resist, the resistance? Yes, the resistance, fighters, yeah. yes, the resistance, the, the, the Serbs, the resistance. Because I believe I understood that they offered pact, but Yugoslavia, Serbia didn't want pact, and they were shouting, Bolje rat nego pact. Better to have a war than a pact with the Germans. And I, the night before, I heard this on the street, but this five, I didn't know what it was, but loads of people shouting, Bolje rat nego pact, Bolje rat nego pact. So we got rat, which is uh, war, but the partisans were sort of already... Perhaps if I was older, I would have known what it was. Mm. Nobody spoke about politics at home at all. And that, as and we arrived there, it was terrible because you turned around and you saw this orange color. Whole of Belgrade was burning. It was quite beautiful in a way, but it was so tragic because you see, in the eye of a child, ignorance is bliss. I keep on saying this because you just oh wow, it's like fireworks. And then my mother decided that we are going back to Budapest because she was Hungarian. My grandmother was Hungarian. And Hungary had a pact, so they didn't have a war. And we walked back. The partisans gave us some blankets with a hole in the middle, mm -hmm. so we wore it as a poncho. And then when we went through villages, people were very good, and they gave us clothes, so okay. we got dressed a little bit. When we arrived to Budapest, it was quite normal. As my mother got herself a job, and we had a nice little flat, what was the atmosphere like in the sense that did you let everyone know that you were Jewish? Or did no, nothing. You we were just continuing. I didn't even know then, and there was nothing. I didn't know. At that time, the bomb didn't choose. Bomb the Jews or anybody, everybody. It was murder for everybody. So we didn't know at all at that time what was happening. And then we arrived to Budapest. As I said, we had a lovely little flat. My mother went to work as a teacher. She was a ballet teacher. Mm -hmm. In Yugoslavia, she was working in the court for the Yugoslav queen. And that's where I met King Peter of Yugoslavia. I that episode from the book, yeah. And it's very funny because I had an amazing little life because I always, I was through my mother's dancing school. I was involved in dancing, I think. I started ballet dancing when I was two or three. As soon as I could stand, I would, I was a little show up, show off already then. <laughs> so we got into Belgrade, from Belgrade to Budapest. And Budapest, it has got the most amazing parks, mm -hmm. really beautiful. And we went in the afternoon for a walk. And that's where a big woman, my, I was so little, everybody was big compared to me. She made a straight beeline for me, and she spat in my eyes, calling me Bidojido, which means stinking Jew, and was screaming and shouting. And I just, first of all, I had all the spit on my eyes. Mm -hmm. And my mom, she was a very small well, I'm not big, but she was a petite woman, but she was a very feisty woman. And uh, if anybody would have 
said anything against me, her daughter, she would have taken on <laughs> a wrestler. That would be it. Be it. She would just... But this time, I was surprised that she didn't shout, she didn't bite her or something. She just clinched my hand so tight. I tell you, I thought she's going to break my hands. And she just turned around. She wiped the spit off my face. And I said, Mommy, I remember it just looking at her. She said, what is a stinking Jew? And she said, I tell you later. Let's go home. And on the way home, for a strange reason, I mean, we didn't have a car or anything. We walked or went with a bus. But everything changed after the spitting session. Suddenly there were buses with great big writing on them, get rid of the Jews, and you would see some caricatures with people, long noses and hunchbacks, and sitting on a pile of money, and they would say, they are stealing your money, get rid of them, and uh, death to the Jews, and it was announced that everybody, every Jew had to wear a yellow star of David. And as we went home, the tannoys, but on the way to the park, there was nothing. No, so after that incident, after you suddenly the, yes. became aware of all and, 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 and my mother was walking faster and faster and faster. It became, we were practically running to get back to the flat. And as we got back to the flat, my mom told her, my she grandmother said, what has right, happened. Okay. Needless to say, oh, if I was her, I would have beaten her up. My grandmother was crazier than my yes. mother. And uh, my mother decided we are not going to wear the yellow star. And then she reinvented herself. She bought herself a uniform as a Red Cross nurse. And she bought a great big wooden cross. cross, My grandmother and me, we had a small cross. My grandmother was quite religious. And she thought if she wears a cross, it is gonna burn her skin. But it didn't, it saved her life. (laughs) And I was actually quite jealous that my mother had ginormous big cross and I thought maybe she's more Christian because she had and I said so the better Christian you become do you get a bigger bigger cross cross, (laughs) so I thought anyway so we then decided Mm -hmm. we moved from the flat where we were to a one bedroom pokey little place in a poor area where people wouldn't be more invisible if you like but suddenly Budapest changed, people changed. Everybody was looking at somebody else as to find, are you Jewish? And and people became spies. It was like the fifth columnist. Everybody was spying on their own families. It became so, I was a child and I didn't understand that, but even I could feel, you could sense that that on my mother, my grandmother hardly ever went out on the street but they wouldn't take her for a Jew because she was very Hungarian. Mm. And uh, people say people look Jewish. Now people are more a melting pot, but in those days perhaps the Semitic look, I don't know. So we were hiding and we very seldom went out, but we had to. So on the streets, it was horrendous. You could see how the uh, great big, lorries would stand in and stop in front of the house and you could see how they were shoved into this lorry some of the old people couldn't even go up yeah there was one story i remember in the yes. book oh. you were watching from the from the balcony yes. or something where you yes. and the, the soldiers were 
just yes, throwing yes. people into the back of the van. But the the way my mother, it was very. She was very quick and very courageous. Mm. So she would. We would have to walk around because we were homeless. Basically, we didn't have any coupons for food either. So, as she was dressed up in this nurse's uniform, I had to have a bandage around my face. And if she really wanted to make it look very authentic, she would then cut her little finger, to put, put a little bit of blood, and then it, and of course the streets were absolutely <coughs> full of cordons of uh, civilian fifth columnists who would just ask for your papers. And if you didn't have the right papers, as soon as my mother had this sense, as soon as she saw somebody like this, she would go up to them and she says, if you're looking for any papers, would you like to check our mine? Because this little girl has I just had an accident. There's an amazing story in the book, isn't there? So I, I'm, we're going to, I want to have you retell that whole story. Yes, but just, yeah, so it was the, the Hungarian police, the arrows, and just the civilians that was quite shocking at the anti-Semitism in them. I'm assuming there were boycotts, Jewish shops, and there was oh. Jew houses at this time, wasn't there? And all these sorts of things were yes. going on. Yes. And I think what is so shocking and so cruel they were the same people whose doctor was a Jew, or they went to school, mm. the teacher was maybe Jewish. The next-door neighbors who they exchanged gossip and exchanged maybe People they'd been living with yes. previously, yeah. They were the worst ones because yeah. they almost felt that it is their duty to get rid of the Jews. Yeah. And they almost had this triumphant look on their face. And that is cruel. Mm. And that was why they were so successful, because they had so many of the Nilos, which you call the arrows. Right. It's called Nilos in Hungarian. And you are almost ashamed later on when we were liberated and I was living in other countries. Yeah. I was really ashamed even to admit that I'm half Hungarian. I was just ashamed because if you think about the Hungarian people, they're very talented. You have got musicians composers, mm. how can the same people be so bloodthirsty and so full of hate? Mm. How? And, and this is, as I've kind of studied this, I, it's you know, not, not just Hungary, it's in, in Poland and, and all the places, it seems to the deep-rooted anti-Semitism, European anti-Semitism was just kind of bubbling underneath the surface. Yeah. Uh, it's very unusual. And, and just to get your thoughts on, yeah, we talk about the, the, the caricatures, the cartoons, a lot of the propaganda that was going on at that time. But obviously, there are parts of the world today where you can still find those cartoons being pushed out in media and being very popular. And we we have movements in this country trying to boycott Jewish businesses and you know, boycott goods that come out of Israel. Even uh, the EU recently tried to, to mark every product that comes out of a certain area of Israel. So do you, I mean, what do you feel when you see things like that happening today, even after everything that's, that's happened? Well, if I don't have the list here now, but if you think about it, if they want to boycott everything that comes out of Israel, most of the equipment that is for heart surgeries comes from Israel. That's one of the most, funny things, isn't it? Yes. Most of the microbiology, all those scientific things for heart surgeries... Most of the technology eye comes from Israel today. Yes. They have a big, big tech. So if they... Very funny, because if one of the very high-ranking high officers from the Arab countries are needing life-saving, 
why the hell do they send them to Israel? Mm-hmm. If it is so terrible, and this is such a hypocrisy. It is, yes. And this is absolutely like they used to, oh, that was many years ago. Did you read that they used to inject Jaffa oranges with some poison? I have, I have heard that. I mean, that is just it's stupid. It is just... Uh, the mind boggles this. You cannot expect, explain it or understand it. And if they want to boycott it, as I said, they take out all the good things. So what do they want to boycott? It's, I mean, I've even seen pictures of uh, boycott rallies where they are sitting on their computers that were actually manufactured in, in Israel. Israel. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just, it's just idiotic, know, really, isn't know, it? Yeah, but yeah. Let, let, let's, let's go back to the story. If we went out for dinner, you and I, we wouldn't eat a spoonful. No, because we, we, the meal would be cold before we got there. But I love dinners like that. Well, although I do like the food too, so I have to admit. I'm a good cook. Yeah, well, there you go. Well, maybe something's something for the future then, Doric. If I could jump, there's just another story that was so hard to read, but really stood out. It's kind of one of those ones that lingers with you after you've read the book. And it was the story, I think you're, you're in a block of flats with the mustard tiles at the bottom. And, and you just described this beautiful girl running up to you. And she, she, you're obviously very young, five, six, five or six at this age. No, I was about seven you're by seven, then. seven, were you, at this, at this really time? Really old. And she obviously doesn't want you to see what she's going to do. Would you be able just to... to, to re- at that time, we had to leave... We were again trying to find where to stay and we lived on the fifth floor and there were about five different families. I think there were about four rooms and each room had a family. And we were all, I remember there was this old man who was coughing, coughing, coughing all the time. But we were about, maybe about 20 people in a three, be- four bedroom ta- flats and it was on the top floor so it, it was quite incognito. And I was told I must, I was the only child, that I was not allowed to go out, whatever happens. And uh, a child is a child. I wanted to go out of the front door, so I had a piece of uh, chalk, and I would draw something on the tiles, and uh, suddenly I heard his footstep running, running. I left my door ajar because I thought my mom is going to kill me <laughs> because I was so, such a good girl, I, I so disciplined. But I just thought, it is, nobody will see me. So I st- And then suddenly I hear this running, running up the stairs. And then there's this lovely girl. She was about 15, 16, long, beautiful hair. And she was very out of breath. And she said, can you get me a glass of water? Quick, 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 quick. And just as I turned around the corner, she just didn't want me to see what was happening. Mm. I didn't get her the glass of water. I just listened and I said, why is she getting rid of me? She pushed me through the door practically and I heard some other people up the stairs and talking and yelling and whatnot. And then she jumped, jumped off from the fifth floor onto this mosaic yellow little mustard colored uh, yard, if you like. And then the soldiers came up, two of them with the bayonets and then they just looked down, ah, we are too late. And I could see this all there, but I had to shut the door so that they couldn't see me mm. because obviously I, was, I knew there was something wrong. And then I think it was, I looked down when they were gone and she was lying like this there and you could see some blood there. And later on, I told my mom and everybody and so we one by one we went down to have a look and it had a tiny little dent in that mustard-colored mosaic there. And when I told you, no, I never forgot that in my life. No. So she rather got killed. And then, oh yes, I forgot to tell you. And as she jumped down and the soldiers came up, I ran around the front 
to look out of the window, and I could see downstairs from the opposite house that there was a big lorry, and the opposite house had a big yellow star on it. That was a Jew house. And a Jew house, if there was an official Jew house, mm-hmm. then the SS and the soldiers, anybody could stop and just empty it and just put them into gas chambers or whatever they wanted. And of course, this girl, just as she was supposed to be taken, taken she just legged it. Decided to run and, and, know, to as I said, so, but I don't know whether I'm preempting it or not. You asked me how I came to write the book, or oh, that's not mm. yet there. Yes, yeah, so I asked you that at the beginning, yeah. I could never want, I never wanted to go back to Hungary. No. I couldn't talk very much about it, because it was very painful, and I didn't want to remember. No. But then I had my own children. I never wanted to have children, because I didn't think anybody is justified to have children, because you just don't know what is going to happen to them. Mm. You cannot guarantee their future. And perhaps I didn't want to create another little Jew to be spat at. <laughs> but once you have children, you think differently. Change, yeah. Then you become a little lion. So having children kind of made you more, you wanted to sort of feel you had to tell tell the story and, and get it But out not in the beginning. I just wanted to, because I had nothing. I had no childhood. I, My childhood became through my children. I learned how to play mm-hmm. through the children. I loved the nursery rhymes. And to me, when they played... It is not that let the kids play. I played with them because I never played you were, before. You were doing it for the first oh, time it too. It was absolutely yeah. wonderful. I remember, it's a stupid thing to remember, one birthday my husband bought them a set of little yellow ducks for the bath. Mm-hmm. And I was so jealous suddenly. I said, could I have those yellow ducks? And my husband looked at me completely. He said, why would you want to have some yellow ducks in the bath? So I said, because I never had any. So for the while, I, sh- I shared it with my children, but later on I had my you own had ducks. Your own, you had your own set, did you? <laughs> they bought me a present to go to Hungary, my granddaughter and my oh. mom and my daughter. And we stayed in a lovely hotel and we went to Budapest. To step out of the plane onto the Hungarian ground, it was a very strange feeling. On one hand, I wanted to see it. On the other hand, I said, I promised I'd never go. But I couldn't say no, they bought me these tickets. No, and course, I thought... Yeah. Well, so we went, and uh, I remember a lot of Hungarian, but apparently the taxi driver was the first victim with whom I spoke Hungarian. And he looked at me, he said, oh, your Hungarian is very old-fashioned, because languages change. And I said, well, yes, I learned it from my grandmother. And uh, after a few days, I couldn't resist it. I took a taxi and went to the place where the mosaic to the flats yes we had to move from there but then about a few months later that place was so bombed it became derelict from the outside it was a ruin and because my mum remembered what big cellars they had Mm -hmm. that's where we went down and that's the same cellar that we spent nine months at the end of the war you spent the lot oh right okay Uh, that's the same it's just during the war as towards the end yeah that's where we stand, stayed nine months without, oh, that's that without yeah, water. Yes, yeah, that yeah. So that house has got, and I got out, and there was the same as we got out of the taxi. My stomach went into my knees, but I went in, I walked in, and that yellow uh, mustard colored mosaic the thing, the dent was still there. The house was completely different because that the, and the young couple came out and said, 
they obviously saw us and we spoke English. Mm-hmm. What are you doing here? I said, the place where you live. I used to live there. Would you like to come in and see it? I couldn't. And they had a little baby. They were very, 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 very poor. So I gave him the money. They were thrilled. Would you like to see the cellar? He said, I've got the keys. My daughter and my granddaughter that just stood there said nothing. And you see, that cellar had these very long windows and had these bars on it. That's where we could see the Nazis' boots walking up and down. And I was just sort of, I couldn't go down because not only I couldn't go down, but the sole of my shoes grew roots. I couldn't move. I couldn't move. I I couldn't even talk. And I honestly, I thought, I'm going to be sick. Mm. Anyway, when I sort of got, I said, thank you, thank you. And we left. And I think it was my granddaughter said, Nanny, you are so white. Are you all right? I said, yes, I'm all right. Just let's get out. Just let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And then I decided in the taxi back to the hotel, I'm going to write about it. Right. That's, so it was that moment of that's confronting the, moment when I said, the past in that respect. Yeah, that's what it. I've got to do this. Well, there's another episode. I want you just to tell the story of the, the Christmas tree. Because that, that is, that's another one of these things that just stood out. After that that is one of my people like it best somehow. As I told you before, we had to be mingling among people. Mm-hmm. Not to be standing out. No, of course. And uh, bus stations and railway stations were the most popular place where people would go. No needless to say, we never carried anything with us because only the refugees and the homeless people carried clothes with them. And that would be very suspicious. Because it was so cold and we were so hungry, my main diet was roasted chestnuts. Mm -hmm. They were very, very cheap. They were very nourishing, and my frozen little hands would hold on to them until they were warm. So I usually ate cold chestnuts because I wouldn't... Transfer the heat to your hands, yeah. yeah. And it was Christmas Eve, and for some reason, even in the middle of the war, there was such a buzz around in the railway station. It was called Kelatipaya Udvor, and you could just feel people were rustling and bustling everybody was running to get home it was a different atmosphere and suddenly out of the blue out of comp- that's what they did the specialty of the ss and the nilosh the germans and the all those the minute of surprise mm. because they would surprise people they would appear from nowhere that's where most people were caught and from nowhere there were all those police whistles and from all the different directions, suddenly soldiers, the yeah. soldiers appeared with dogs. In those days, they had Alsatians. Yeah. And suddenly there was everybody in that cordon. It was actually a death trap. Now, again, my mother was always wearing her the nurse's the uniform. Outfit, yeah. And I was usually walking with a bandage around my face, enough holes to be breathing, but you breathe through your mouth. This was one of the other occasions. It was already getting a little bit dark. Christmas Eve, and uh, there was sort of the cordon, and a couple of the other people would pick up people from inside the cordon, the men, and ask them to open the... In those days, you didn't have zips. There were buttons, which I learned later. I didn't know what 
that is, I have never seen a naked man. I didn't know the difference between boy and girl because mm -hmm. I didn't have brothers or sisters. Anyway, but this is also quite, it stays with you. Because those people, whatever they had when they opened the buttons, whatever yeah. they had, some of them are got shot on the spot. Just on the spot, right. Some of them are taken out of the cordon and marched, frog marched to a waiting car. Some of them shut again the buttons and walk off. It, amazing how many people, because if they moved and they wanted to run away, they were shot. Right. If they stood there sort of placidly, they were shot later. And there was a little old lady there at the end of the day selling Christmas trees. My mother didn't have much money. And there was a tiny little twig there. I think it probably fell off the normal Christmas tree. Just before you tell that, just let me just jump back just for our listeners. Yes, 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 yes. Um, what, what I'm assuming the soldiers were checking for then was if, if the people were circumcised who were shot yes. immediately. If, yeah. if, if they made a move to, to run away. They'd be but shot as well. Yes, yeah. but so, and as, uh, for me, later on in life, once I knew what it was, but at that time, I was only a little girl. Yeah, girly. I didn't know what was going oh. on, yeah, no. I never, never even know, knew yeah. that there's a difference between a girl and a boy. Yeah, of course. Okay, so, so I, ju I just wanted to clarify yes, yes, for yes, people listening. So, yes. Okay, so your mother saw the, 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 the yes. someone selling Christmas trees yes. in the station. And uh, as I said, she didn't have any money, very little. And as she was in this nurse's uniform, this was like the key open sesame because it was just the magic answer to everything, her uniform. Mm -hmm. It was like really like a godsend, if you like. And she went over, she said, well, what is the cheapest? I remember her saying... I would like, I need a little Christmas tree. Oh, so I think my mum had a few pennies. She said, is that enough? And she gave her a twig. But the cordon was so big. Mm. We were inside the cordon as she was. So as soon as my mother had this twig in her hand, she walked over to this soldier. I remember he was, things that you remember as a child stay with you. I don't know what I had yeah. for lunch yesterday. But I really remember that. It's a long-term memory. It's <laughs> yeah. a funny thing, isn't it? Yeah. And so he was a fat, red-headed soldier. And my mother went up with this little twig. And he says, oh, please, he says, could you check us first? Because I'm on duty tonight. And I would like to light the candles and pray to Jesus with my daughter before I go off for my night duty. Oh, he says, my dear sister. And I was shivering there. And my mother was shivering, but she didn't. Oh, she was so gutsy, my mum. She was only in her mid-twenties. Oh, yeah, she stands out in the book as an, yeah. as an amazing character. And uh, he, of course, my dear, he says, may little Jesus look after you. Patted me on my head. Have a happy Christmas, my darling. We are not looking for decent people like you. We are looking for the stinking Jews. Because in Hungarian, it was just a saying, which was like, it was not enough to see the Jew. Mm -hmm. It was the stinking, the stinking Jew, Jew yeah. the bloody Jew. So it was always a superlative to going yeah. with a Jew. And I just remember my mom again. I mean, I'm surprised that I don't have broken fingers. I was going to say, yeah, she grabbed your hand again. Again, and, and we wanted to run, but my mom's no, no, don't run, because that would be suspicious. 
But it's very clever. It was very, a very quick thinking. And then, you see, we had that Christmas tree and also the holding the Christmas tree was full of prickles. Or what did it matter? And just as we went, we were sort of about 10, 20 steps already outside the cordon on t- because there's an archway, I remember that going through. And you look back and there were hundreds of people in that death cord, c- cordon of death. And you thought, well, at the time I didn't. Mm. But later on, I thought, these people, it was a death trap. Yeah. And each time I said, later on you could think maybe God saved us. My mother believed that that. Mm. I just couldn't understand. I just flew, I just did whatever m- happened. And so many times it happened again and again. The book is just amazing. It's a roller coaster of emotion and, and narrow escapes. We mentioned like the guard there, you know, we're looking for the stinking Jews. And you get sort of confronted with just the callousness of how normal they were to some people, but how direct they were, the hatred towards the Jews there. And, you, you know, we mentioned that about the soldiers from the other countries too. One of the things, though, that again stands out in the book is you do meet some sort of exceptions to the rule with some of the people you meet. I'm thinking of the uh, the actual was it where you were in Pex, I believe is that how in Pex? Yes, Pitch, he was the inquisitor. He was. You call them inquisitors? The inquisitor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My mother worked for the underground, and uh, and I think this is one of the reasons why we got addresses where we could stay at night mm-hmm. because my mother would suddenly get a little piece of paper from somebody. And surprisingly, she always chewed them and ate them yeah, again, I that, yeah. which I just didn't understand. And one day I said, could I have a bit of it? And she just looked at me. Of course not. No. So these were safe houses, basically, yes. that she had on paper. And um, so when we went to Page, I didn't think they picked us up because being Jewish, but they marched, frog marched us down. One of the soldiers who was having the bayonet ushered my mum into this room. And I was ushered to the seat on the window seat. And I could see the door was ajar. And I could see one chair where my mom sat with a spotlight on her. But then again, what was very strange, the door had like a quilt on it. I didn't know that was for being not to hear noise. And my mom, she was white. And this man kept on writing and writing and writing and never acknowledged, never said nothing, just, I don't know what. Again, you as a religious man, you will perhaps believe it was sort of a... Divine providence in some respect. Yes, because I was a little girly. I was seven then. Mm. But I was very small by nature and by not eating. (laughs) And I went up to this man and he had a frame, picture frame, and two little girls smiling. And I took the frame, turned around, and just as I touched the frame, he looked at me. But he had the most beautiful blue eyes, that man. I didn't know that he was a chiefy, chiefy, top SS uh, interrogator. Oh, I said, oh, who are these two little girls? Are they your children? Suddenly his face changed. He said, yes, they are my, my daughters. I said, how old are they? Must be about your age, he says. And our eyes met eyes to eye. And I looked at him and I said, are you going to hurt my mommy? And I could see into his soul, he could see into mine. He got up, banged his hands on the table, and in German, he was German, he said, oh, scheiße, very normal thing to say. Beckoned my mother out, 
he kicked him out, got my mother out, and put his hand in his pocket, took out every piece of paper money he had, put it in my mom's hand. He said, not all of us do it happily, what we are doing, and not all of us are filthy swines. One day, he says, perhaps you will remember this. Now, she said, a new little daughter, she's your guardian angel. Cherish her, he says. Get out of here. I'll take you down. Don't look left. Don't look right. Don't do anything. Just take the first train, he says, and it doesn't matter where it goes. Just go. And he marched us to get down with us, and every soldier there went like this, and he just went. He risked his life. Just to get you out. But I was the same age as his daughters. Would I have kept my big mouth shut and sat there? He would have never even noticed me. No. So it was divine... Uh, what did you call it? Providence, yeah. In a way, because I had suddenly, I don't know, I honestly, just you, will, over you, you will interpret it differently as I do, because you are a believer. I don't really know how to. No, you haven't got I'm a, trying, an and perhaps I'm more religious than you will believe. Perhaps I don't call it religion. Perhaps I call it belief, or whatever you like. But perhaps you can enlighten me. But that moment, whatever it was, he became a human. God knows how many people he has tortured to death. God knows how many people have died because of him. But at that moment, he was a human. And therefore, that stayed with me for the rest of my life. It was a standout moment in the book as well for for reading it. And therefore, you can never, ever... He is the reason that I went to university to Germany Mm. because I didn't want to have anything to do with anything that has been German or anything like this or the Hungarians... But when I saw that he was human, I started to think, well, there must be some nice Germans. Not Mm. everybody can enjoy that. And I was right. And I like to believe now that there are lots of nice people. Absolutely. You just have to find them. I want to just jump forward. You mentioned briefly that you spent eight, nine months in a cellar, sort of. Was that during near the end of the war? Yes, yes. And then after that, so that was, you didn't go out at all, as as long as I read it. So that was a horrible, there must have been a terrible time uh, trapped in that cellar uh, until the end of the war. And then after that, was that sort of when uh, it was being liberated? Yes, the Russians liberated us. Yeah. And... uh, the Russians were actually the first liberators, not the British, not the Americans. No, and it was the Russians who liberated Auschwitz. Yes, they were the, they were I the believe first so, yeah. because I think the first one who came into Budapest, mm. they were the Russians. That was quite amazing because, I mean, they wanted to give us food and they gave bits and bits, but of course some other people were just devouring whatever they got, but I, by that time... I was three and a half stone, and I lost all my hair. Right. I had pleurisy and pneumonia, and I couldn't stand because I was too weak. Right. And also, my stomach shrunk to such a tiny little so thing. You didn't eat much, even I couldn't you had even. It, yeah. I couldn't because for some reason, my mother's brother, he was taken into a concentration camp. I think it was to Poland or somewhere, but he escaped and joined the partisans. And when the Russians came in, and they gave us chocolates and things mm-hmm. and everything, and it was sort of about after the first 20 soldiers who came through the cellar, my uncle was because he came and he had a rucksack full of food and everything. And was he looking for you? Yes, was he, was he yes, yes. For you? He was looking, and then one of my 
my mother's aunt lived in an amazing, amazing house, but they took them as well. And my uncle, her brother, knew that we would be in touch. So he first went to that house, but the neighbors said, the neighbors said that they were taken and killed to the gas chamber, but his sister mm-hmm. and mother and daughter were last known to live in that wherever we were. Right. That's where we used to live, but then we had to leave and we came back because we thought, well, it's a derelict cellar, but we know the cellar. And outside, nobody thought anybody would ever live in it. So, but the imagination that he found us, can you imagine, out of all of Budapest. And I remember that when he opened his rucksack, he had a smoked ham, nice Jewish thing to have. And when he opened it, everybody else from the cellar wanted a swarmed bit. Swarmed. Yeah. Everybody had something. And then he g- cut a chunk off for me to eat it. I took one bite of it. I think I could join this. So then we repatriated to Yugoslavia yeah. because my grandfather was a solicitor and he's a very big family. And we hoped that everybody else would go. My father was taken to Siberia and uh, he was taken to forced labor camp. And after the war, we found out that he died on the place. He was worked to death and starved to death. And he was about 30. My grandchildren are almost that age. I would have liked to know him, but I didn't. Anyway. So there was nobody who came back. The only person who was alive was me and, of course, my mother. And I just remember that when we got into the house, there was nothing in the house. It was pilfered. So my mother got very angry. That's how I knew her. And she got a couple of partisans with guns given to her because she was a hero. She was a war hero. And she went from house to house. And collected up every... And collected... from the grand piano yeah. to the paintings to the city, and the neighbor said, "Well, we are just looking after them for you." Of course. What kind of rubbish! And so, basically, she then refurbished the house. Yeah, she got everything. Got everything back. But you cannot replace it with people. And uh, can I d- jump forward a little bit now? There's a chapter about it in the book, but but it was 1948. And you emigrated to Israel with your mother? Yes. You just, and you went, and that was, was that the end of the British mandate period? Was it well, we were actually the first people to go there. One of the first boats yeah. that was allowed. To My go. uncle and his wife and his two little children, they were the first one who go with my grandmother. And about, because they were already there, and they had a little shikun. You know what a shikun is? No, what's a shikun? It's a little house. Little house, okay. But it is prefabricated. And my mother and I had to wait for the visa, and we followed her. And I was on that ship called the Radnik, mm-hmm. which means in English worker. And we just reached just outside of Haifa, but the British didn't let us no, through. They weren't, they weren't doing that, were they? Because they limited immigra- Jewish immigration. Yes, and, uh, but we didn't have any fuel to get back to Yugoslavia either. So we were just there on in no man's land, but not in land. I don't know how you call it when you're on the sea. Very, very hot. And we, I think there were about 1,800 people, and most of them were children. There were sort of about over 1,000 children with the parents. Suddenly we ran out of water. The kids got dysentery, and we were seven days on the ship, but they didn't let us through. So... 
on humanitarian grounds, I said it was UNESCO or, yeah, or whoever, they, were, they let us in to Haifa. And it was just quite amazing because on the quay in Haifa, you could see all these um, blankets mm -hmm. and people and sleeping bags, rows of rows of rows. Yeah. And everybody, as soon as the first person got out, did you see, did you meet my son? He was in this and this concentration camp. Which concentration camp did you come out? And they were bombarded, and some people did find. Did some people yeah. had their relatives coming down. It was so emotional. I bet, yeah. And I just remember people have been throwing oranges. I have never seen an orange in my life. Yeah. And that was just so... Some people never found the families. Yeah, I can and, but some people did. And then we were put in a great big camp in Haifa. And that's where I saw there were black Jews, there were Chinese Jews, there were Jews from Yemen. Mm -hmm. I thought all Jews came from Hungary. Yeah. <laughs> and we got out after a few days because we got to my uncle because he was already, we were Olim Hadashim, new refugees. And it was just wonderful, everybody was Jewish. But I had a very funny incident, and I don't know whether we'd like to know it. It is yes, sad and it funny in a slip time. Now, to me, a Jewish letter, a Jewish writing was the Bible, which was holy. And when we arrived into this camp in Haifa, we had tiny little toilets where small little uh, canvas tents things, yeah. with a little hole in the ground. And down from the, there was no wood there, cut up newspaper, saw a string that was your loop paper. But they were all in Hebrew letters. And I went to do what I needed to do, and I was looking for the toilet paper. And this was this cut up Bible there. Mm. I couldn't use it. Run to my mom, I said, Mom, I cannot write my bottom on the Bible, this is holy. Yeah. Well, of course, the whole other people just laughed about it, explained, no, it is not holy. Everybody writes like it's this. It's just a newspaper. It, you know, it, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that was just so very, very funny because, of that course... Because you'd only seen Hebrew or... Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Like, this is a sacrilege. I can't yeah, yeah. And you weren't religious. That yeah. Was so that was one of the funny things yeah. in life. And how did you... you cause we, we talked about it a little bit before the interview. You you had you enjoyed your time in Israel. Oh, it was wonderful. In the beginning, I was tapping people's shoulders and saying, excuse me, are you Jewish? The road sweeper. Are you Jewish? Yeah. The bus driver, everybody, everybody. It was just wonderful. And, and, and nobody tried to spit at me. Nobody looked at me with that hatred or wondering, right. is she Jewish? It was just like being born new. Yeah, so that, I mean, I, I find that fascinating because a lot of the stuff I'm engaged with in the political realm and things like that, you see the uh, just the objections that people have to the Jewish nature of, of Israel and the, as the Jewish state. and But when you hear about the origins and, and people like yourself coming from that, you, you see the, you know, the need for, for You see, Israel. if during the war, and if, I mean, the upbringing of the ghetto mm. makes people into a different kind of person, they are brought up to be grateful, to breathe the same air as the Gentiles do, they are very subservient. They very much try to be accepted. They are sort of a kind of people who are quite afraid of confrontation. If during the war, of course there were some people who were brave, but they were criticized by the religious people, you can't do that. 
So some people rather got killed. If there is a fight, I will die, but I will at least take one of them with me. That's how I used to feel. Yeah. And this is the tragedy of the Jewish upbringing, because so many of them had the ghetto psychosis, and it takes generations to get out of it. That's why most of them became doctors or lawyers or bankers, because they wanted to be better. They wanted to compete mm. with the Gentiles. And if you're a doctor, mm, that was good kudos, people will come to you. So they wanted to create, and they were clever, and they were ambitious. They changed their own class, assimilating. And were you in Israel for the War of Independence? Were you... We were about the first people there because I was on the end of 48 and in the beginning I said it was the birth of Israel. (laughs) Fantastic. Yes, it was an amazing time. But you see, it is again, people who said you were given Israel. uh, I mean, Samaria and, and, and it was Palestine. There was never a Palestine as such. Palestine was invented by the English if I'm right. Uh, yeah, they ruled over the region that was partitioned off, but originally it actually went back to the Emperor Hadrian in 135. Exactly. He renamed it Syria-Palestina exactly. to insult the Jews it, at that know. time. Yeah. So the Jews were there for a long time, but they lived quite happily together in a way. Mm-hmm. And then I believe that they wanted to create the state of Israel in the middle of Africa. That was one proposed, Uganda, I believe. It exactly, was, yeah. That was proposed at one point Yeah. the early early Zionist movement. So they were given a little tiny little piece of land which they worked and they made miracles because out of the sands they made arable land. They made the desert bloom, so to speak. Now, if I have a house, it's mine, and I bought it and I work for it, I will defend it. Now, if the people would have learned how to defend themselves during the Holocaust, I don't see that all of them would be saved. Mm. But a hell of a lot of people would have been saved, or at least they would have taken few of the bastards with them. The hum- the whole mentality of the Jewish people in those days, they were frightened of their own shadow. Mm. And now they got Israel, something to fight for, and now everybody hates them. So if you are knocking on my door, and you would like to have a piece of bread and I have it, I share it with you. Mm. If you, on the other hand, come breaking through my front door or throw stones at my window, even at my age, I will not tolerate it because that's mine. I will share it with you if you are hungry, but you have no right to come into me. I'm not coming into your house. And now the whole world has changed because they were very sympathetic towards Israel. And now it has totally changed. The way they phrase it often is that uh, in the early days, Israel was considered to be like David up against Goliath after the Holocaust and as a fledgling nation uh, fighting the war of independence and the Yom Kippur war and everything. But then now it's sort of flipped and Israel is seen to be the Goliath, you know, bullying the David in that respect. And it's a really inverted state of affairs. If I may tell you a very funny story. I have got an acquaintance who is very anti-Semitic and I used to be be with him in a writer's group and he's some kind of actor or something. And he kept on sending me videos, what the Jews do to the Palestinians, and very, very pro-Palestine and very anti-Israel. And then he, he sent me a video where a soldier is picking up a child mm-hmm. and beating it. And he said, you see, 
This is what the Jews do to the poor little Arabs and the tortured children. Now, the Jews might do lots of things, but children they will never, ever torture. It's just not on. And this is what they do. So I picked up the video and I made it really loud. It was not Ivrit that they were speaking. It was Arabic. But that ignoramus straight away said, and God knows how many of those videos went around. A lot. I've seen a lot of them, yeah. Unfortunately. And I thought to myself, excuse me, that soldier is swearing in Arabic. Yeah. And the child is probably his own child and he's doing it just for the camera. And this is, and what kind of humans would put their own children as a shield? They're saying they're killing the children. But of course, behind the shield is probably one of the top yeah, leaders. Of leaders. The but they put the children as a shield. Well, what, should they, what should the Israelis do? Yeah, no, nothing. I mean, I, I, I deal with those issues a lot. And so this is such a misrepresentation. And all those tunnels that they are being... I have not seen any of the United States, United Nations, stopping those tunnels. No. Have you? No, no. They, they tend to pretend they don't exist. I know. Frank, Probably yeah. they are sending, selling them the plaster to make it harder. I, I, it is just unbelievable. It boggles the mind, doesn't it, yes, sometimes? Yes. The double standard yes, and the demonisation yes, yes. that goes on in those issues. That's another issue we could spend the whole, a whole episode talking about that Let's sort of stuff. Let's make a new date. Now, we, we must wrap this up. I, I want just briefly... Obviously, you're a, you're a survivor. You choose not to be a victim, and there's a lot of hope in your book, and, and it's a wonderful story to read. But that's not the end of your story. You went on to have a successful singing career, and the, uh, the back end of the book sort of charts your travels across uh, is Turkey and Greece and various different places, singing in clubs, and until you ended up with a recording contract. And of all places, you actually ended up being a pop star in Germany. Yes, it's again, quite amazing. Which is, it's just the art. It's just boggles the mind now slightly yes because i went i went to university in munich Mm -hmm. i chose because i just didn't want to believe that all germans are horrible and especially since that german saved our lives and i found out actually i like the german food they're very cultural people but they spend most of the time when they met me apologizing it was not us it was our father but of course you cannot punish the child of the father's no, sins course, and all yeah. that. And they, I was quite a good singer, actually. I think I was really good. And we're hoping we can play a little clip, yeah, actually, on right. the podcast. And so. they, over, once they heard me to sing, I got a contract. And it was amazing. Yeah. But I was really always surprised. And I thought, well, was it my Jewishness? I don't know. It was that I was Jewish, but I had a good voice and I was quite good looking. Mm. And it was almost like a double whammy. Yeah that it was Germany who made me into their pop star. Pop star, yeah, it is amazing. And uh, again, I just urge everyone to to get hold of the book and you'll find uh, that story told in full. Um, Let's just bring it back up to what you're doing today now, Dorit. I I know you're involved with Holocaust education and speaking in various different places. Um, So if you just give us a little insight into, into how you're helping sort of tell this message through your book and other means. My book is supposed to be almost like a a message Mm. that everything is possible. That from the yellow star, where I didn't even have shoes to wear, and as I said, I was given six months to live, the journey to where I am today, most people wouldn't even believe it because if I wouldn't tell myself I was there, I would really think I'm telling a porky. But porky, very kosher. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) but... I was there, and those memories, I think it is quite inspiring to some of the people when they say, well, I I could never become such and such. I will never be a doctor. If you want to become a doctor, and you really want to, 
you have to work for it, but you will become a doctor. Maybe not now, maybe not tomorrow, but after tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And you have to sort of deal with the cards that you were given. And even if you were given some real crap cards, you make an ace out of it or make a joker out of it so that you can become a winner. And if you live your life the best you can, yesterday is history. And once I finished all the things that I really had to do in my life, like bringing up children, having grandchildren, having businesses, I just believe that educating, especially the young people who are the children of tomorrow, that are the grown-ups of tomorrow, but they're the children of today, and they... I owe them to tell them what really happened because they should understand they might not like what they hear, they might not even believe that what they hear, but I do hope that that will make them think that one day when it is important, they can make a decision to stand with those people who are killing other peoples and who are bullying other people, who are anti-Semitic or anti-anti-anti, to say, hang on, no, They are human beings just like I am. And that is what I feel that I am dedicated. Perhaps I'm not a religious person as you are or others, but this is my religion. I feel I have to pass it on to have a hope for a better life, for a better world. Well, that's uh, where we want to learn the lessons of history, and your voice is very important in that. Now, to to end, I want you just to tell one more story from the book. And it's actually in the book you start with this story, because it's for me, it's just one that really summarizes sort of your whole story in many ways at the book and it's the concert where you were chosen to give a performance in front of was it the german air force or something like that so uh, people whose parents and grandparents would have been involved in in some of the things that we've talked about and it was your choice of song that really Oh God, uh, yes. St- struck me. So if you just, let's just end. I sang it last night. Actually. I heard you <laughs> sung it last night. I know. So um, you see, by that time, when it happened, I had become quite popular and I was invited to shows and concerts and television shows and I toured France and I got paid for my singing, although nobody understood that I would have sung for nothing because I just loved it, but I had to pay rent. And I was invited first into this celebration of some kind of a, the German Air Force. And I, the agents, I had agents, they rang me up and said, you know, I don't know how you feel towards it, but they particularly wanted to have you. And I thought to myself, I can't really do it. But then again, I was a professional yeah. entertainer and I needed the money as well. And I thought, mm, I'm going to charge them twice. If they don't pay, I don't go. But if they pay, I go. Yeah. Well, of course, they paid twice as much as I usually ask, and I felt, there you are. And uh, I accepted it, and it was in, I think it was in Bremerhaven, if I'm right, Bremen. And it was such a posh do. They had red carpets out, and through the curtains, I just watched the people come in. The ladies, my God, did they have some elegant clothes and tiaras and pearls. It was all glitz and glamour, wasn't it? All glitz and glamour. But when I looked at the gentlemen who were accompanying them, they had uniforms on, exactly the same bluey-gray uniforms like the German soldiers did. Suddenly I choked, and they had medals on, and they had boots on, and they they came on the red carpet. There were all sorts of tables there with candelabras, and it was... But as soon as I saw those German soldiers coming in, it was just like a... 
flashback. A flashback. Yeah. And I, th- I said, I can't sing. That I can, I come out on the stage and I can't sing because this was suddenly not a, a public. There were the German soldiers, and I was a little Jew. But eventually, I did go out, and they already came with. Whether they knew that I was, well, they must have known. They over as soon as I arrived out of the stage, my name was allowed. I had a standing ovation, and then I sang my usual songs, blah 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 blah, and then I thought, hmm, and I get. I don't know what made me do that, but every now and then I have got this, what did you call it, uh, something in invention. D- oh, divine providence. Yes. Suddenly something came and I said, and now for my final song, I'm going to sing you my very favorite song. It is an old Hebrew song. And I thought everybody's going to go like this, but they sat there very proudly sitting there. And this is Havana Gila. And the way I sing Havana Gila, I started Kolovocha, almost like a rabbi. I mm-hmm. started to sing it uh, very emotionally in Kolovocha, and then it goes into the rhythm. And I started singing it. And then as soon as the rhythm section came on, they all got up and started to clap in rhythm to the Havana Gila. Wow. I had tears in my I was eyes. Say, that must have been qu- quite a sight to see the German soldiers. And I just felt on the end, because that was the last song, and on the end, I just felt myself, I put my arms up like this. And I thought, I made it. Yeah. You, did, you didn't manage to kill me. You killed all my family. But I'm choking now. It's okay. And that was such a triumphant moment. moment. It was almost all of the time that I have had this terrible, terrible childhood, which I didn't have. All in one, I just suddenly felt, I made it. Yeah, to get the German soldiers getting up in the uniform, clapping to Havana Gila. Oh, must have been a very surreal moment for you. Yes, and, it, and, and I get goose pimples now if I think about, about it. I did reading it, actually. That was a bit immediately because it's a song of Jewish celebration, isn't it? That, yes, that, that and, and uh, last, time, last night we had our own Holocaust Memorial Day here in Eastbourne, and they, the organisers have twisted my arm, and one of them... The songs, one of them was Evenu Shalom Alechem, which means we bought you peace. And this is what the prisoners felt mm-hmm. when they were just being liberated. They hardly could stand. But as soon as they were liberated, you should have seen them sing and dance and mm-hmm. kiss each other. And that's why I thought it was an appropriate song to sing. To sing. Yeah, absolutely. And then with the Havana Gila, of course, that is... Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate, yeah. Let, let's rejoice, isn't it? Yeah. It rejoices because life is too short. And whilst part of me has never left the Holocaust, mm. it is just like if you had something on your shoulder burnt into you. It's always there, yeah. But part of me is rejoicing every day. The freedom. Freedom is a very important thing to be. You, to have the freedom to come and go and be in charge of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Very few people have got that privilege. Well, that, I, I love that story, and it reminds me of the the expression in Israel. I mean, the people of Israel live, they say o- often, don't they? It's sort of thinking of you with your arms up in front of the German soldiers singing that that Hebrew song uh, is amazing. And I just want to say thank you, Dorit, for sharing your story with us. Again, there's so much more that you could tell. Um, you've got your book. I encourage people to get your CD. There'll be links, and I'll make sure I direct people to the right places on all the notes that we do for that. But Thank you very much. For it's a privilege time. to ask me to talk because I just I enjoy the fact that there are people going to listen. And as you know, I'm a public speaker and I'm very happy to 
speak right. and give my talk. It's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Shalom. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.